Welcome to Money Management on KXLY 920. A weekly look at the art and science of investing. Now, here's your host, Mike Mayo. Welcome to Money Management. I am Mike Mayo with the Spokane office of the Opus 111 Group. And we're here as we are every Saturday at uh, 9 Pacific to talk with you about the markets and the economy and answer any questions you have about that as it applies to your own situation. Here we are, according to Bank of America Merrill Lynch, uh, they've done an analysis of stocks, commodities, and so on. Markets are on track for their third best year since 1990, after only uh, behind uh, 2003 and 2009. <laughs> you wouldn't know it from the headlines, though, would you? And uh, once again, my friends at CNBC leaping to the fore with the headline, negative earnings season just turned positive as companies beat lower forecasts. I mean, that's like manufactured news all the way across. Uh, you know, no matter what the economic circumstances are, no matter what the backdrop is, uh, there's this dynamic every quarter that companies like to lowball their earnings estimates and the analysts like to give them headroom, give them a little room to maneuver. And the fact that the numbers are coming in better than expected, well, that's not atypical when they're reporting earnings. And, and I think there's some good reasons to believe that despite... Uh, this uh, drumbeat of down, uh, downward expectations, earnings season could come in better than expected. And, of course, that would be good for the markets. We'll be seeing that this week. I think 25% of S&P, so about 120 companies are going to be reporting. Um, and faster growth uh, of uh, earnings would definitely help stock prices higher. And, uh, you know, with markets basically set up for a decline in earnings, uh, a smaller decline or some growth is probably going to be, as I suggested, helpful for uh, the markets in general. Now, including, uh, well, this week, as I said, earnings coming, including uh, from Alphabet slash Google, Amazon, uh, Mickey D's, Boeing, United Technologies. A lot of these guys are going to be reporting this coming week. Now, this past week, uh, we saw quarterly profits higher at J.P. Morgan Chase, Wells Fargo, Citigroup, Goldman Sachs, which does not have a large consumer operation, which they are starting into now, is the only big bank to report lower profit because uh, their trading and deal fees shrunk. Now, here's something that makes no sense. Johnson & Johnson this week reported earnings up 42%. 42% in profit. Now, that's not bad. What did the stock do? Well, it was down 1.6%, of course. That only makes sense. What? You know... It was some nuance in the numbers that the uh, analysts didn't like. The point is, is that to respond on earnings news, uh, if you're a long-term investor, is usually not a very good idea. Amazon reported that, um, and, you know, they had the Prime Day thing this last week. Their sale beat out activity, their Black Friday and Cyber Monday combined. So I guess they just created their own holiday. Cheapers. <laughs> <Yeah, jeepers. laughs> That's amazing stuff. And Microsoft, the country's most valuable public company, uh, reported earnings this week, uh, said their cloud computing business drove record revenue in the latest quarter. The revenue up 12%. Now here's for a quarter, $33.7 billion. That's not a bad three months work, is it? 
most of what happened or didn't happen this last week is directly related to what traders are thinking about the Fed. And (laughs) they're being very intrepid because the market, I think, uh, was up two one day, down three the next, uh, 115 it was down one day. Uh, and it was all on comments. A comment from one Fed governor saying, gee, I think maybe we should drop rates. The other guy said, no, I'm not in any big hurry to drop the rates. And so there, the traders are keeping everything in a very narrow band, if you will. Uh, they're he- Again, it, yesterday's session... Uh, well, ended in the red because one of the governors said, well, again, I'm not on board with having to raise rates right now. And that seems to be the dilemma because I, you know, they're looking at this next meeting of the Fed, which is uh, July 31st and currently operative term. Um, the pricing looks like about a 25% cut is a 100% uh, chance and a 43% chance, according to the traders, of a 50 um, basis point or one half of 1% cut. You know, they're going to be paying close attention to what uh, the Fed comments are after the meeting uh, and, uh, you know, what kind of indication they give for further cuts. Um, I think uh, we're going to see uh, there's going to be a less of a chance of a 50 basis point cut simply because of the strong economic news that came out this week. You know, when they released their decision, when the Fed released their decision last month, it it was probably as dovish as you can imagine without actually going ahead and cutting the rates right then. Uh, They downgraded economic growth from solid to moderate and uh, are noted that uh, some indicators have declined. And that statement, as well as comments uh, made subsequently by Mr. Powell, uh, suggested that this 25 basis point drop was pretty much in in the mix already. Well, as he's noted many times in his testimony, the uncertainty is due largely to trade. It's not a function of interest rates being too high to offset the trade-related uncertainty. You know, it's like you've ever had the unfortunate... Now, the Fed does seem to be obsessed by what's going on overseas, including uh, the slower growth in China and Europe, and (laughs) that's not exactly data-dependent, I don't think. You know, it's not news that uh, China is a communist country, and I, I don't know that it's ever worked communism at creating wealth in the long run. Uh, you know, it grew rapidly. China grew rapidly for a long time by importing foreign technologies, exporting to us, the West, and uh, how might I say, confiscating intellectual property from abroad. Those shortcuts are pretty much done. Uh, And if you think our monetary policy can solve China's problems, I don't think that's exactly accurate. Now, what about Europe? You know, you think the Fed can fix their slow economic growth caused by their governmental policies? They've got high taxes, regulations, spending can't be fixed by the ECB's negative rates. So how we're going to do it, I have no idea. But um, I think, on the other hand, the big gap between sentiment and reality, doom and gloom, despite there is ongoing growth, is really a key reason to be bullish on euro stocks. They got a positive political backdrop uh, with, <laughs> what do you call that? Uh, oh, nuts, I can't think of the word. Anyway, it suggests to us the future for European markets is uh, brighter than what most are willing to concede. So just keep that in mind. Now, Understand that what we're going to be subject to here in the near term is this 
upping and downing uh, with regard to what they think about interest rates. But short-term interest rates, and especially of one quarter of 1%, are not long-term significant. So just kind of look past, you know, look over the valley and say, okay, they're going to do what they're going to do, and the markets will continue to uh, respond subsequent to that. And, and you know, in, in regard to the economy, you, you get volatility in these reports. They're normal from quarter to quarter. There's never any, uh, well, okay, an average increase or decrease of this, that, or the other in these reports. And right now, the trend of growth across the board, as I'm saying, remains quite healthy. And that's why it's become kind of a dilemma for the Fed to say, hey, we're going to cut rates. Well, if it's data dependent, maybe not. Jobs and wages are moving up. Companies, consumers continue to benefit from the tax cuts. Balance sheets on, from consumers look really good. And serious 90-day debt delinquencies are down substantially from where they were after the recession. Matter of fact, con- uh, the Commerce Department said on Tuesday that retail sales were up 3.4% compared with a year ago this time. And that's uh, according to the, um, who are these nice people? National Retail Federation. The numbers are consistent with elevated consumer sentiment, healthy household balance sheets, low inflation, and wage and job gains, unquote. (laughs) The Economist had projected uh, growth uh, in retail sales being up just one-tenth of one percent, so 3.4 percent is really blowing the doors off. And we've got four consecutive months of rising retail sales, suggesting that consumers do indeed remain a deep reservoir of strength for the economy. And they're also, they're also, the consumers, sorry, are taking advantage of low interest rates to borrow and spend, and that's boosting the banks that cater to Main Street. Again, like we talked before, uh, J.P. Morgan Chase and Wells, Citibank, these guys have big consumer uh, divisions, whereas um, Goldman Sachs doesn't. Now, Americans have never been wealthier, so I hope you're all feeling pretty up today. Uh, Household assets at an all-time high, total value of $117.6 trillion. Total net worth, which is minus liabilities, $102.5 trillion. So you might as well go out and buy everybody around tonight because you just got well. Now, relative to these assets or to discretionary income, and this is, I think, important consideration, debt levels right now are very manageable. They're substantially lower, as I said earlier, than they were before the financial crisis. Right now, household debt service, financial obligation ratios, they're the lowest since the data series began 30 years ago. So put it another way, American households are both richer and carry lower debt burdens, lowering a huge source of both economic and psychological stress. And in my experience, as long as you have strong consumer demand, you're going to have solid GDP growth. And <laughs> I don't know how that would lead to a recession. And without a recession, it's hard to get to a bear market. So there you are. Um, I think that, uh, you know, this is not something we need to concern ourselves with right now. Matter of fact, J.P. Morgan Chief Executive Jamie Dimon uh, praised the strength of the consumer this week after the largest bank uh, did post record second quarter earnings. Jamie says, uh, we continue to see positive momentum with the U.S. consumer, healthy confidence levels, solid job creation, and rising wages. Now, one other thing uh, regarding um, real estate, builders started homes in the second quarter, second fastest pace for any quarter since 2007. And the only one that was faster was first quarter of 2008 when uh, it was after the 
Hurricanes Harvey and Irma uh, blew through the south when they had to. <laughs> they were building big time to replace homes that were destroyed by those storms. And job openings in construction remain at record high. One of the challenges of getting the housing thing fixed is there aren't enough folks to build the darn things, certainly qualified ones. And uh, in other words, the general rising trend in home building, uh, going back to 2011, remains intact. The only weakness we saw was in multifamily permits, and that varies a lot month to month. Now, like that mean teacher, I'm going to give you all a pop quiz. You just came back, you're just hanging out, and oh no, I quiz. Okay, it was a test given to 16,000 people in 15 countries. It's three questions. It was uh, given as part of the Aegon, A-E-G-O-N, sorry, Retirement Readiness Survey, measured how well people understand basic financial concepts. So, here's question one. Uh, and by the way, no calculators are allowed here, okay? So, suppose you had $100 in a savings account and the interest rate was 2% a year. After five years, how much do you think you'd have in the account if you left the money alone? A, more than 102, B, exactly 102, C, less than 102, D, I don't know. Okay, number two. Imagine that the interest rate on your savings account was 1% a year and inflation was 2% a year. After one year, how much would you be able to buy with the money in this account? Answer A, more than today, B, the same, C, less, D, I don't know. And then finally, do you think the following statement is true or false? Buying one company stock usually is, excuse me, usually provides a safer return than a stock mutual fund. Is that statement true, false, or you don't know? Okay. Well, just let you work on that homework there for a while, and uh, we'll do a little other something-something here in the meantime. So, <clears throat> you know, if history is any guide, market economic history... There are three things that can typically move our economy into recession. One is the bursting of one of those bubbles you always hear about. Two is an outside shock that no one was anticipating. Or three, those federalities raising the interest rates too far and too fast. So as we're going into the back half of the year here, um, I can't see any bubbles anywhere. Uh, it's certainly significant enough that if it they, whatever, were to pop that the entire economy would be at risk. You know, outside shocks like we had the Arab oil embargo and certainly uh, 2011 uh, are rare. And with the Fed being as accommodative as they are, easy, it's likely monetary policy will not mess up the economy. Now, understand that new all-time highs are always bullish. That's just how it is. If, if you're hitting all-time highs, you're typically going to have a few in a row as we've had. Now, the current bull market is showing signs of having been refreshed by that uh, almost 20% drop-off late last year, in the last quarter last year, and it kind of reset a lot of expectations lower. And, of course, which then turned the Fed dovish and seemed to anticipate the slowdown that's shown up in recent data. But 
this latest rally to new highs, it's been pretty broad. Uh, cyclical bellwether groups starting to shake off the cobwebs, performing better, taking some money from uh, the uh, bond equivalents like utilities, consumer staples. Uh, and that's typical. Uh, one of the reasons, too, that the market is not having any real direction is that the traders know this, and they're kind of doing internal uh, reallocation of their positions so they can be... Yeah, in their minds, positioned to take advantage of what's coming next. Ryan Dietrich, who's the uh, financial strategist at LPL Financial, said that if the S&P climbs another 4%, it will have doubled the peak it reached in the previous bull market. Now, we've only had three bull markets have done this uh, jump 100% gain from the prior bull peak, and that was uh, the great bull markets of the 50s, 80s, and 90s. Now, City Research says that there are a number of warning signs to look out for before a stock market slowdown, but only a few are present now. They have their own checklist of 18 items. Uh, I didn't have it. I didn't want to make a dramatic reading. Uh, but in any case, uh, 18 items to identify if global stocks are about to enter a bear period. City says that although the S&P is near a record high, only four of their metrics indicate this is the top. So basically 25%, not enough to get things too excited. Scott Minard is Global Chief Investment Officer at Guggenheim. He said uh, this last Monday that the S&P could rise 15% and get to 3,500 before the end of the year. Uh, he said easier monetary policy from the Fed and central banks around the world would boost stocks before the end of the year. He said this rally, whether you're looking at bonds, stocks, high yield, pick whatever you want, it's all being driven by liquidity. And central banks around the world have basically signaled they're going to step on the accelerator. Liquidity means availability of money. And see, interest rates are is the cost of money. And so if you have very low rates, well, money is plentiful for whatever purpose. And uh, that's certainly good for the markets and the economy. Now, J.P. Morgan this last Monday, they raised their forecast for the S&P, and they said the market is set for even more gains in the second half, as, again, the Fed uh, moves toward easier monetary policy, and uh, we get uh, some sort of resolution uh, with the tra tariff stuff with China. Now, their chief U.S. equity strategist says they're raising their S&P 12-month price target to 3,200, which is about 6% up from here. Um, as their upside is increasingly in play with Fed and Trump easing on policy while investor positioning slash sentiment remains low. Now, the global expansion remains intact with growth better than most appreciated. Again, as I said, particularly in Europe, gridlock, that was the word I was looking for, gridlock persists across most economies, decreasing the likelihood of market upsetting major legislation. Always a good thing. And this <laughs> sour sentiment, which has been in evidence since, oh, I don't know, 2008, uh, points to more wall of worry for stocks to climb. And if the stocks rises bumpier and slows a little bit compared to first half, no matter. They still look like stocks are going to continue to go through the end of this year. And, and again, to go a little more into the Europe thing, uh, their economic outlook looks fundamentally fine. The big gap between sentiment and reality, doom and gloom, despite their ongoing growth, I think is a key reason to be bullish. 
you know, a, a positive political backdrop there suggests to us the future for European markets is brighter than most appreciate. They, the workers in, in Europe, age 55 to 74, account for 85% of the employment growth. So that helped uh, balance out a, a demographic cliff due to the aging of their uh, society there. So, now let's go back. I know you've been waiting. You've had the test. I hope nobody looked and copied. <laughs> I know Jay copied off mine. But okay. Uh, suppose you had $100 in a savings account, interest rate 2% a year. After five years, how much would you have? Well, without going into the math of it, uh, more than $102 because it's compound interest. It's uh, interest on interest. That's what that means. That's one of the great things about long-term investing. Now, number two... The interest rate was 1% a year. Inflation was 2% a year. How much would you be able to buy with the money? And the answer is less than because of inflation. Even though that income didn't change, the actual cost of things rose enough to where you wouldn't buy the same amount. And finally, do you think the following statement, true or false? Single company stock usually provides safer return than a stock mutual fund. Well, that's false because of diversification. Now, you know what? Most people flunk this test. That's 16,000 people in 15 countries. Now, I don't know what constitutes flunk. That's only three questions. <laughs> Is it one or two? I don't know. But anyway, uh, it kind of does show that uh, if, if you're not exactly up on those answers, you might want to be doing a little homework uh, before you get too heavy into the retirement planning uh, so that you know which way you can uh, adjust your holdings to to benefit you going forward. Okay, now you know, you know folks over a hundred. <laughs> that's the world's fastest growing demographic. You believe that? I mean, there's more and more folks over a hundred. This is globally than ever before. Well, you know, the baby boomers are the biggest single contingent of people that ever happened uh, in terms of uh, getting old now. So. This is just the beginning of all of those considerations. And according to the World Economic Forum, uh, they say that the average American 65-year-old has enough savings to cover just about 10 years of retirement. Now, this despite what we have here in this country as a, well, Social Security, let me see how I can do this. Married couple, non-smoker, 65. One of those people will likely live to be uh, over 90, okay? So, and most people, and I know this from personal experience, uh, are hesitant to plan for a long retirement. I don't know why, uh, but that's the case. Uh, so, you know, you have, to, you have to plan for longer retirements because, and it's, this is the truth, the longer you live, the longer you're likely to live. It's, that's what the actuaries tell us. So, you know, we're all talking about averages, but, and everybody's different, but, uh, you know, so you can't say based on these studies from these guys or whomever that what they say based on today is what's going to happen tomorrow because that assumes nothing changes. And if, <laughs> if you're dealing with reality, uh, things always change, don't they? And if you add back in Social Security here in the U.S., and that's about half, a third to a half of a person's pre-retirement income, it could cancel out a lot of that uh, 
looming crisis. The average check, I just looked this up this morning, the average Social Security check per month in the U.S. right now is around $1,450, $1,450 a month. Um, and as a percentage of replacement of your income, folks making relatively less money per year than others, that Social Security represents a bigger chunk of replacement income than it would for someone at the higher end of things. So you got to plan that as well. And as it says, it's about half of the retirement income. And only 36% of folks think that their uh, Social Security is going to be around. They're, uh, 53% are counting on uh, 401k stuff. And, you know, here's the thing about Social Security. They've said that they're going to run out of money uh, to fully fund the system in 2035. That means that uh, payments will have to be changed. If no, okay, if nothing changes in the system, but just how it is right now, if nothing changes, we could see, we would see twenty five percent cuts across the board in twenty thirty five, but they would continue at that level for the next seventy five years. So I'm assuming two things: one, that Congress, because their jobs depend on it are going to be doing something about Social Security before 2035. And two, you've got time to plan for it. So, you know, don't worry about Social Security being there as part of your retirement. It'll be there. And if you want to be real conservative, knock 25% off whatever they say your check is going to be. But for those, uh, and that would be of existing payments or new payments. It's not, they're just saying 25% cut across the board. Now, this according to the world-famous World Economic Forum, they're saying that, uh, and they're talking about uh, retirement, um, they say that they're, they make a useful point, they say. Many investors, I'm quoting, many investors increase their own retirement risk by being overexposed to cash and other quote-unquote safe assets. The report says, quote, one of the biggest risks to a retiree is outliving their savings, once some capital has been built up, of course. But while saving consistently is critical, earning a return on savings also has a substantial impact on retirement outcomes, unquote. This is why safe is kind of a tough word to use when it comes to investing. No asset is really safe if holding it means you run out of money before your time. Often, just getting your principal back, uh, even with interest, won't cut it. Uh, you know, the the WEF, uh, World Economic Forum, uh, suggests placing a greater proportion of your savings into return-seeking assets, I guess that's code for stocks, rather than lower return-seeking allocations, like bonds, could go a long way to relieving your potential. You say, well, man, that's risky stuff. Well... Over five-year periods, yeah, you're going to see, uh, well, going back to 20, 1926, uh, five-year historical periods, stocks average 10% annualized. But they have a standard deviation, read that as fluctuation, volatility, whatever, um, was 8.7%. So that's fairly high. Now, bond returns over five years have averaged 5.3%, so half, but only 4% standard deviation. So that's why you have them in the allocation, because they don't move as stocks do. However, when we go out further, which is what retirement planning is all about for your long-term stuff, 
30-year periods, stocks averaged 11.1%, but their standard deviation went way down from 1.7 to mere 1.3. Bonds, 5.5% with a 2.7% standard deviation, which is more than double. So stock returns fluctuated more in the short run, but in the longer run, they deviated less often and had much, much higher returns. So that's imperative, I think, in terms of your long-term planning, especially for out there, you know, out there in further time. The further out you go, the less risk you have of stock price erosion in your stuff. <laughs> and of course, like all of life's rich emotional experiences, the full flavor of losing money cannot be conveyed simply by talking about it or reading about it. So how you protect yourself Assets and strategies that you might hate right now because they're underperforming, well, they'll eventually have their day. Assets and strategies that you are loving right now because they are kicking all kinds of hind end are, uh, well, they'll eventually come back to earth. You know, the problem with searching for that optimal, the very best portfolio, well, it always seems to be changing. That portfolio today is unlikely to be the best portfolio of the future, the only true optimal portfolio is the only known with the benefit of hindsight. Oh, I would have done that if I only known. Yeah, okay, we all know that. As we keep talking about here, the certainty of uncertainty. You, you know that you don't know these things. And some people, it makes them pretty anxious because they don't control it. Well, if you can't control it, you, you, what can you control? You can control your attitude and you can control your investment selection such that you are uh, well-diversified, well-allocated, within your goals and objectives to get where you want to go with the least amount of risk necessary for you to get there. Now, you know, successful investors know there's no such thing as a perfect portfolio. You've got to understand and live with whatever drawbacks exist within the portfolio you've chosen, again, based on your values and goals, and then stick with it. The strategy you either can't or won't stick with is the same thing as a failed investment plan. Now, understand, here's the numbers, you know, the, the, the uh, John Candy School of Economics. Just the facts, Jack. Since 1927, we've had 202 monthly closing highs in the S&P. In that same period of time, we've had four market crashes. I'm not sure what that means, but that's what they're saying. In any case, that's a lot of time worrying about something that happens 2% of the time. Okay. Uh, and, and if you look at it another way, stocks are up 70% of the time year on an annual basis. If a guy was a baseball player and was hitting 700, I'd believe he'd have all the money in the world. So 70 is pretty good. You know, these false fears, global trade tensions, slowing economic growth, fluctuating oil prices, they continue to weigh on sentiment and they dictate what the market story du jour is, yet... Stocks look forward. They've already priced in all the stuff that's in the news, and they've moved on. And they don't care much about what happened in the past either as far as price is concerned, up or down. You know, different opinions, different objectives, different time frames. It means that wisdom is kind of hard to find in the financial markets, and this lack of consensus is part of what makes interesting kind of a very, excuse me, makes investing a very interesting process. 
You know, nothing wins and is forever in the market. Be sure and listen to Opus 111's Mike Mail every Saturday morning on 920 AM KXLY in Spokane. Stream the show on KXLY.com or subscribe to this podcast and we'll bring the latest episode to you. Security is offered through KMS Financial Services.